Hey everyone, welcome to B2B Made Simple. I'm Sam Moss, the CEO and co-founder of OneClick Agency. On this show, I interview marketing experts from fast-growing B2B SaaS companies. We feature podcast episodes I'm a guest on, and sometimes we throw in a consulting call I've done with another company. Our goal with this show is to equip you and give you the tools you need to be the best marketer you can be. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to B2B Made Simple. Joining me on the show today, I have Carolyn T.N. Spalding. She is the CMO of Aptology. Carolyn, welcome to B2B Made Simple. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, tell you, I feel like this podcast has been a long time coming. <laughs> yes. I know we've been in, in uh, planning and chatting, and uh, I'm excited to actually be here. So uh, to kick us off, um, fun little question. Are you an <laughs> Apple or Android user? Oh gosh, why do we have to start with the controversial ones? Uh, <laughs> That's how you always I'm should start Apple a podcast. Users, yeah, <laughs> Apple, Apple. There you go. There you go. Is that go from your PCs as well, or is it uh, just phone? So, uh, so I'm actually hybrid. I have a gaming PC. <laughs> nice. Uh, with a wonderful NVIDIA graphic card in it um, that I hook up to my 4K TV, and then uh, for work, I have a MacBook Pro. Nice. Nice. Well, I like it. Well, Carolyn, <laughs> thanks again for, uh, you know, the quick, uh, quick question, but let's get into some real marketing stuff. This is what I'm excited about. Um, so today, uh, I think this is gonna be a really good talk because it goes hand in hand with what I'm pretty passionate about and it's removing friction from the yes. buying process and B2B companies for some reason still have not, uh, gotten on board with this. Um, so my opening question for you is, what does it actually mean to remove friction for your buyers? Yeah. And I think we can go into the differences. You know, why is it that B2B is the way it is today? Uh, I don't think anybody wants to make it difficult uh, intentionally, um, but actionability, right, from a marketing and a sales standpoint is, has been historically difficult in B2B. And that's where you have all this complexity. So in the B2C world, you have things that like ability to buy right away. You have a lot of you know, like you're the own hero of your journey. You decide, you go and talk to your friends, you go online, you have a bunch of resources. And because the price point is usually low in a lot of um, B2C use cases, um, you're the, the buyer yourself. You can make a decision using your credit card. You can buy right away. In B2B, historically, that has not been the case um, for a variety of reasons. One of them is you're typically not just buying for yourself. And that is changing. And I think we should talk about that. But historically, you know, IT departments, which would buy for an entire company uh, and really leverage the power of bulk buying, um, mm -hmm. like bulk buying computers, right? So you're asking me about, do I have an Apple, an Android, <laughs> or a PC or a Mac? Um, IT departments get to buy like, you know, a thousand at a time and get mm -hmm. discounts, uh, really leveraging the power of volume discounts, right? When you're a company versus just an individual. Um, so you had this, you know, bulk or volume issue uh, that and centralized buying. And then you wouldn't have a single buying process as a result as well, where IT had their considera considerations, there might be compliance and legal considerations such as privacy, or can you make things very secure, right? How do you protect your workers' information, the company information? from being hacked into, for example. And then you'd have the actual users like you and me <laughs> who might be starting to pull and say, I am more comfortable with this environment or there are things that I need to do with my terminal or there are specific applications that run better on different systems. 
And therefore, this is what I need, or maybe I'm developing an app for an iPhone. And so it makes a lot of sense to have one to -hmm. understand what it is that I'm going to be presenting to our customers, right? And so as a result, um, you know, like the user is not the buyer, which is is, is complicated. And then um, a lot of things were done offline. And so trying to understand who your buyers were, the buying committee, the buying process, which is different by companies, um, that was super challenging from a marketing and sales perspective. Mm-hmm. And from there, I think, was born the complexity of, you know, lead generation, collateral, and um, I won't talk to you unless you talk to me first, mm-hmm. and I'll set up an appointment <laughs> and give me more information because you are completely anonymous to me. And that's changing. It's changing in several significant ways. Uh, one, I think we're bleeding off from Sunday night to Monday morning, right? Like your person, the person that's you on the weekend is the same person that's going to work on Monday morning. There's, there's fewer and fewer differences in what you expect from the process, um, in how you buy and how you think about buying and how you research what you're buying. I think a lot of employees are now empowered to really understand what their needs are and make a number of very independent decisions, certainly the pandemic has only accelerated that, you know, you're mm-hmm. at home and you have to make, you have to work, right? So you have to make the decisions on what it is that it's going to take for that to happen, for the business to be able to move forward in a very decentralized way. The second thing that's changed significantly is that business models have changed. I think with, you know, good examples of that are Box versus Dropbox, for example, Um or uh, you have even Uber Eats and DoorDash have made their way into the workplace. And those are per seat licenses that can start from the ground up. So instead of a top-down approach, although that's what Box did, Dropbox took a bottoms-up approach where I could start you know, backing up my files personally, then I could invite mm-hmm. you to share one and the per seat license would expand until eventually you have enough traction that the company is trying to buy a company license and then it mm-hmm. becomes an enterprise deal. And you've, you're really seeing the proliferation of that, you know, drift work that way as well. Um, you have outreach in the sales world. You have um, even on accounting sides. Now you have the ability to do reimbursements, right. That are on per seat license. So it's beyond the business model. I think the understanding of how people uh, fulfill their work needs and, um, you know, like research them and then buy them and action them much more quicker. Um, that's made the business a lot more nimbler as well, right? Mm-hmm. We can decide to do something, you and me, we can start a new company tomorrow and we can get a corporate credit card with Brex uh, pretty quickly. We can go on GoDaddy and start a website. We can just do a WordPress instance by ourselves, right? And get that going. We could go on Upwork and find a freelancer and use a corporate credit card and get it done. So I think the way we're doing business is very much influenced by B2C. And it makes sense because at the end of that are the same people, right? The Sunday morning to Sunday evening to Monday morning person that blends that, you know, it's, it's not that much more distinct anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that proliferation of the way we buy and the way products and services are offered is really changing that. So when it comes to these B2B organizations that might not be set up from bottom to top, right? Yeah. Because that's a totally different go-to-market motion. Yeah. What would you say to them? Like, what would be their first step when it comes to removing friction? Because I don't think at this point they can really go bottom up, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are um, a few different things, right? And this is where it's a comprehensive thing. You know, you, you, you do get that in marketing where it's like, oh, you know, we want to be PLG, we want to be product, product like mm-hmm. growth, yeah. which is great because number one, product should live under marketing. This is like my soapbox. We can start there. <laughs> it's super controversial. It's the first P of marketing. You learn that in school. Um, but it's great that people go to marketers and say, I want PLG. That's awesome. However, um, as the name suggests, product-led growth, unless you make changes to your product fundamentally and how mm-hmm. it works, uh, you're not going to be able to actually have a PLG motion. Um, you can, in marketing, try to identify your buyers earlier in the cycle, understand where they are. There's certainly now more and more technology that empowers marketers and sellers to remove friction from their process. Uh, for example, you have um, Clearbit and Drift uh, allow you to understand who on your website is looking at what collateral um, and if you link them to your emails that you sent out, you can understand at an organizational level who in what organization uh, is looking at your collateral or not, which mm-hmm. is always enlightening as a marketer. Uh, you have tools like MediaFly, where in the sales process, you can understand in your buying committee who is actually looking at what collateral in your buying committee, who's opened what to what extent. So you have incredible analytics on where people are in the staging process so that you can stop at- asking them stupid questions like, mm-hmm. you know, what's the company for, you work for and which industry are you in and what yeah. are you working on? All this stuff can be researched, but the problem is who's going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's been, that onus has been put on the buyer historically somewhat because the sellers had bandwidth issues. Like you could mm-hmm. do all this research, but then what's the delay? What's the cost of doing that? How many touches for each company does it take on each prospect to get that information? And isn't it just quicker to ask people? Well, it's yeah. quicker for you, but it's not quicker for them. And now I think technology is really removing some of these barriers mm-hmm. for, for marketers and sellers. Now, that's great. Information is, is wonderful and we need it um, and we need to action it. But without a product that then supports the ability for a prospect to self-select into a buyer, um, you can't go really far. And it's very practical considerations. I mean, we're not looking at, you know, theory of, of buying here. It's, do you have a system like mm-hmm. Fastspring, for example, um, to actually be able to pay with credit card? Uh, a, a lot of these things had a very high barriers to entry. Even the Stripe, you know, like if without development would be very challenging to actually implement. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plugins, but they're not that straightforward. Um you now have some technology that helps with the buying process itself, but it still requires some things to get unlocked in the product. So it all goes back to, can you action things in your product? Even, okay, I gave you my credit card. I have a payment system. You have an intake system to take money. That's wonderful. Now what? How are you going to create an account, right? How are you going to log in? What is the action that you can take as an individual? Um, What's the next best action? Is there any viral element? For example, I can invite you to my Dropbox or I can invite you to share this document. Uh, And if not, if you don't have these mechanisms, then what is your cost of acquisition? So it's a comprehensive business review to understand how you can get to a closer frictionless, more D2C or PLG or whatever the latest acronym Mm -hmm. for (laughs) easier to buy, more consumer friendly approach. Um, and I'm glad that we're starting to really involve marketers in this um, 
not just as promoters, but as, you know, business, you know, structurally understanding what needs to be changed in the business to be able to serve today's markets. Mm-hmm. You know, an interesting strategy I've heard around this was, especially when it comes to website forms, I've heard a few companies doing this, you know, you're asking for name, email, phone number, everything and anything, right? But you can yeah. simply use data enrichment. And I believe yeah. all you need is an email address. And then you use data it's enrichment. It's a work email. Mm-hmm. Yeah, work email. And then it basically populates all the rest of the information that you need for the sales call. And it just makes the experience that much smoother for someone and less like crap. Now I have to figure out or fill out another form and it just eliminates that much more friction. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why there's so much discussion about forms and, and marketing forums today. It kind of blows my mind uh, to some extent. We mm-hmm. have ways of getting information now programmatically yeah. uh, that historically needed to be manually pulled. But like, I think you can't underestimate, you know, there's this wonderful book. It's a product management book. Uh, highly recommend, I think, for any business person, for any marketer, uh, called Jobs to Be Done. Um, Wunker, Watman, and Farber, I think it's a 2016 book. Um, and it really demystifies what it is that your product is, is going to do for you. And if your website is your product and its job is to get someone to essentially, I mean, you're, it's selling, right? Mm-hmm. So it's educational, it's awareness, it's a combination of a bunch of things. But for your prospects, if it's getting them to be interested in buying or in fulfilling the buying motion, then like you don't want to add step. And so in jobs to be done, it is very clear. It, it simply states, hey, you have to understand what this person is going through. Like it's, they're not going through a theoretical day. When they open up their eyes in the morning and they get their coffee, about to sip some, uh, what's the next thing that they do? Do they take their Android or, or iPhones <laughs> and look <laughs> scroll through things, their newsfeed or their email or their Slack? Do they open their computer? So what do they open next? Um, it's a very practical, like, what are people trying to d- get done? And, and when you think about that and everything it takes just to operate throughout your day and how many steps everything takes, you look at one more thing differently. It's no longer, oh, it's just five things for them to fill out. It's more it's five more hurdles for them to actually physically jump through before they can get to the thing that Mm -hmm. they want yeah Uh, whether that's pricing or a demo or just buying because they've already seen a demo themselves or they know someone who's using it or it's like why would you add more hurdles um because you're not the only website they're going to visit that day you're not the only thing that they need to do imagine if your email had five steps before you could send an email instead of just one which is send <laughs> or send later right all these things really add up um and i think we're understanding the concept of cognitive load a little bit better now too where adding one more thing to think about is now quantified as a load on your like on your brain mm-hmm. and so we need to understand how much, what is the minimum required from our prospects and how can we alleviate that load from them? Um, because otherwise all we're doing is burdening people who are already pretty like taxed out, I, I think, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's not the only thing they're going to get done that day. So how do you make that easier for them? How do you programmatically enrich the data? How do you uh, suggest the next best piece of content for them um, based on what they've seen so that you retain the knowledge of the context they're in and you can answer intelligently. And it's a lot harder to do than it looks like at first sight. You know, you brought up pricing and my thoughts are pretty well published on it. So I'm curious to hear like what you think. Um, I was reading an article the other day 
and this isn't like super new information. I'd like to, I haven't found the the data on like 2022, but they said pricing on SaaS startup websites. I believe it was 20, it was either 2016 or 2018. Um, it was at like 56% of SaaS websites publish their pricing, right? But it went backwards. It was either in 2018 or 2020. So two years later, it was down to about 30%. And I would love to see some data on 2022. I'll have to dig a little bit into that. Um, but I personally think that that is just one more step that I think companies really are adding to the buying process that doesn't need to be there and just publish the pricing. Like, I don't, I understand. That's that a maybe B2C so thing. That's yeah, a B2C I under, thing. I understand that maybe your competitors can see it, but at the end of the day, if you're really buyer centric, you would think that you'd want that on your website. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, like uh, I'm going to, I'm going to like make more controversial statements. I mean, some of this here, like even the Europeans don't understand American pricing period just to mm -hmm. start off because like when you buy in Europe, the price you see is the price you pay. So if I see something, is <laughs> no two kidding. Euros, you buy two euros and yeah. you like shell out your little like two euro thing and you put it down and you get the thing. And in the U.S., you don't have that. You There's taxes and it changes by county. I mean, it's mind blowing. I grew up in France and like to me, it was like, but how do people know? Do they walk around with their calculators? You know, like, how do you know how much to save on some yeah. of these items? Um, so I don't know if there's a cultural element here, uh, but it is kind of an interesting problem. Um, I think competitors is the, the argument that gets brought up a lot on if we make our pricing transparent, then um, it is easier for our competition to understand and position against us and possibly undercut us on price alone, mm -hmm. um, which I think is somewhat fair if you're in a commoditized market, possibly, or if you're in like hot space, like, you know, like drift in the chat bots, you know, you could make the argument, but I think that it's interesting. We don't see what we don't see. And what I mean by mm -hmm. that is what you brought up, which is you don't see how many customers you're losing because they can't find the information they really want to see. Mm -hmm. And so they bounce. Um, because how much of a quest do you need it to be, right? To understand, is this going to be within my budget or within my buying limit? You know, some companies in B2B, and I know our audience probably knows this, but if you're in B2C, that might be new to you. Um, there are buying limits by levels. So mm -hmm. let's say a director may have up to $25,000 signing authority. A uh, VP might have up to $100,000 signing authority. And so they're trying to understand two things. One, is it in my budget or should I put it in the next cycle, uh, which could be six or nine months from now, like when I was mm -hmm. at Intel. Uh, we did PR plan of record in July, the first one uh, for the following year. So, you know, like you're really thinking in advance about your big ticket items. Um, so like, you know, is it going to be fit, fitting in my budget? And two, in terms of signing authority, who else needs to be in the buying committee? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're, when you're in the white glove approach, you know, anything that's above $10,000, essentially, uh, you really, tr you're trying to get an understanding of, of price and an understanding of what that uh, back of the envelope math is going to be. And I think historically B2B companies have been like, I just don't have enough information. And the issue that I have is that if I give you a pricing and hold me to it, even though you're going to change the requirements entirely, which mm -hmm. 
big companies tend to do to be yeah. fair is like oh yeah no it's a team of 50 people yeah well actually it's like a hundred but also <laughs> like there's international requirements and also there's security and privacy which is and all you fun. said on your website it was this much and you said <laughs> it was that and so i want this it's like yeah but like on my website it's not like five levels of admin and reporting yeah. and custom stuff and services and integration into your homebrew system what is that <laughs> you know so <laughs> It's like, cause it's no custom stuff. And I think that's the problem too, when you're a large company, like truly enterprise, right? Um, to get to that size of company typically takes a while. And that means you have from an IT infrastructure, some legacy items. And when you have legacy items at scale, you go to a vendor and you say, you have to comply with my thing because I have 10,000 buyers for you, right? I have 10,000 people that I'm buying for. And therefore you will conform to my homebrew thingy thing. Um, and I think that's why some of it, it ends up being not listed uh, to be fair to vendors yeah. because all the requirements are not understood up front. And I think that is one key difference that is going to make that transition tricky mm -hmm. uh, from um, buying an overall simplification standpoint. Uh, but it also is worth noting that some companies have been able to get around it. And that is an IT nightmare, to be fair. It's a headache. It's an opportunity for for employees, right? Like the Dropbox, being able mm -hmm. to just shell out your credit card and just start putting your, your files where everybody can find them, right? A simple need like that. But from an IT standpoint, it's like, oh my God. Or from a compliance standpoint, where are files stored? Mm -hmm. And who has access to them? And how do I make sure people who shouldn't have access to certain documents <laughs> don't? Um, so there's a conflict there in a larger company, a, a very normal tension, but one to really be aware of. And I think it is a, a it's a consideration. It's a consideration for the B2B motion to change. Mm -hmm. You know, one way that we do it and to be upfront, I don't, I rarely see a web development firm or marketing agency, anything along those lines, publish pricing. And it's something that I want to be transparent about because I feel like Mm -hmm. One, it will set us apart and two, not many people do it. Mm -hmm. And obviously we can't say this is how much it costs for a web development project. So we do a couple of different things. First one is you can simply list a starting price. I think many companies know like where their projects start and then you can say, Hey, it starts at 20 K for a web development yeah. project. Yeah. If you don't uh, have that, please self-select out. Right. Yeah, it's not exactly. a good use of anybody's time. Yeah. 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 You can do starting price. You can do a range. Um, you can say, Hey, our projects range from X to X and it could be a very broad range, but it could still help someone pre-qualify themselves. So I think there are some ways around doing the exact price, um, on your website that at least still give people like the transparent feeling and the opportunity to pre-qualify themselves. And I think you're touching on something that's really important in terms of a lesson from B2C that I think really needs to penetrate B2B, which is selecting people out. Uh, you see some really successful brands in B2C be very clear about who they're not for. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm happy not to have you as a customer because that is not what I'm going for. Um, and in B2B, you know, I haven't seen that as much. We hear a lot of like, we want to be the thing for everyone <laughs> yeah. all the time, you know, like cast away that we're, oh yeah, yeah, any size company and and any buyer. And I think I mean, most, of course, seasoned CMOs will be trained in doing the ICP, but I think they'll also feel that that pain that we all have mm -hmm. of um, by default. You know, you do hear that quite a bit of like, we want to be the platform for everyone. And I think B2C has um, 
learn that lesson better in terms of who you exclude is as important as who you include in your targeting um, to have a very definitive point of view. And again, on that, I'll, I'll point to Drift. I think they did a really good job on uh, their personality at first and being very clear who they were for and what they stand stood for. And that made its way all throughout, not just communications, I'm not just talking about um, the marketing side of things, but also the product side of things. Um, so like this ability to to really hone in on what you're not going to do, that mm-hmm. focus, I think that will change in B2B. The winners will definitely have that. So I really like that you phrase that about pricing, which is we want to exclude people who are not within this range, self-select out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that discipline, I think is definitely, we're going to see a lot more of this negative discipline, right? Like who you're not going to pursue um, in B2B. Beyond just their budget. That's, that's a really good, yeah, that's yeah. a great point that you brought up. It can be size of company, B2C, uh, B2B, B2G. And behavioral. Yeah. Be- behavioral, I think I'm a really big believer in that. Um, I think historically in B2B, we've only had uh, firmographics, right? Like the type of company, the industry, the size, um, demographics somewhat, um, you know, things like title, position, geography, where you are. Uh, but I think the type of company that you are, additional data is really going to come into play. So are you the type of company that is data-driven, for example, or not? Do you tend to adopt new technologies or are you more conservative because the risk is too high for you? There's definitely behavioral element to organizations that really make a difference in terms of targeting. And those are now starting to be um better known um you can like get uh, an understanding from people's linkedin profiles like leadership how they approach organizational transformation or design or understanding or buying you can see who's a first adopter of technology through there uh, which would have been a lot harder to gather as information before and certainly NLP is not quite there, natural language processing in terms of programmatically understanding these things, but we're getting a lot closer. Mm-hmm. And that's going to change the game because if you know that this, they have a bunch of legacy systems that hook into absolutely nothing and everything is homebrew, then your latest thing that hooks into everything and you know is like the Dropbox is probably going to meet some resistance at some point. Mm-hmm. If they tend to be first adopters, um, then their buying behavior overall will be different. And it will be about, we are willing to invest in technology if it gives us a competitive advantage. So I think there's going to be a new breed of data coming up and available to organizations to action on. Um, and again, not just in marketing or in sales, but also on the product side. Um, so, you know, broader ecosystems of SaaS, for example, um, a few examples come to mind here, things that hook to each other, like, for example, you know, sales loft and outreach mm-hmm. hooking into draft that hooks into Salesforce to give a more comprehensive view, like same thing, Mediafly feeding into it. So you have a more comprehensive view of your prospect, you know, prospect 360, whether you're using Clearbit or other um, enhancements or data enrichment services. Mm-hmm. Those are now going to be uh, more widely available. And again, it's the quality of data, the, the type of data that you have access to is changing. Um, so I, I think that will make a big difference in B2B as well to select people in or out. Yeah. So I want to shift gears here, um, kind of mix things up a bit. We do this on the show quite a bit, but it's, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of podcasts, here's my soapbox, a lot of podcasts, it's just 
talking head, same questions every time. So we're going to try and mix it up here um, with some rapid fire questions. So my first question for you is in regards to website strategy, which obviously we're passionate about, what's something you have recently tried and did it work or did it not work? <laughs> oh, was it a bust? Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to give one of each. How's that? Uh, something good. that was like a total disaster and something that really worked. <laughs> um, so the thing that I thought was going to work really well was to put a demo on every bottom of the page um, only because, you know, I'm a big believer in what you see is what you get, right? Like people want to understand, wrap their head around what it is. And why is it, was it a bust? Um, so I think for one, my page was way too long. So people didn't get to it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a problem. So it's a timing thing, right? And then it's not on every page. I think that was easier for us to implement, but not necessarily the best thing for the buyer. Uh, and so there's definitely some pages where like the contact form or on how it works, where that seemed to then get people to the next step, um, want to learn more or either buy. We, we have two different um, pathways there. On the homepage, the bottom in particular, no one ever went there. So that was a really interesting <laughs> bust. Uh, something that really worked well was I spent the last year and a half talking to our prospects. We have amazing customers, um, amazing prospects too, who even when they turn us down are just super straight up about why. You know, I love these super direct people like, no, I don't understand this. Or wait, isn't that like blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, oh, no, it's not at all like that. Oh my God, what are we saying? That is confusing, right? Like it's clear to us, but it's not clear to the buyers who are definitely doing something wrong. And turn that into a very prospect-centric phrasing uh, FAQ mm -hmm. and started implementing that on the pages and that's doing really well. So Smart. really getting people's own words, like not how we say it, mm -hmm. how they say it. Mm -hmm. uh, and definitely tools there have helped me a lot in terms of recording and the ability to really slow down and understand. It's not that they said in concept, like what is optology or what are behavioral interviews? Like why behavior? And is it a survey or is it like people clicking around the websites? Like, no, 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 that's not, that's UX, that's different, right? But it's exactly how they phrased it, like the exact words. And when you do that, um, it's not your voice, it's the customer's voice. And so when somebody else who thinks similarly, who's in the same position, reads it, it's more relatable to them because it's like, it's, it's definitely, it's people like them. Mm -hmm. So that was, I would say that's, that was a better, that was a better approach, but it took a while. It took a while to gather all the information, but it was worth it. I like it. That's awesome. I appreciate you doing two examples, uh, which is even better. One that worked <laughs> and one that didn't. So my next uh, rapid fire question here is, you know, as a CMO, what's a question that you wish someone would ask you, but they never have? Oh my gosh. What can we do in the product based on customer feedback? Can we please bring that back? Like no one ever <laughs> asks us that. No one. I have to like push it actively. Um, but I think closing the feedback loop into the product is, I mean, you know, you, you'll have reviews for it, but no one ever, ever really asks you, like you, you volunteer that like, information. What do you, you actually think of the product? Yeah, like, you know, what have you seen in the marketplace? You know, what trends or partnerships should we be pursuing? And certainly there are organizations where that's happened. I want to say, mm -hmm. it I don't want to say it never happens, but I don't think it's not, I don't think it's asked enough. And yeah. I think a lot of CMOs I've talked to had incredible insights. I'm like, I wonder if their organizations are, are benefiting from that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Probably not. So the last thing I want to do, uh, and we've done this on a number of podcast episodes, so if you listen, you know what's coming, but mm -hmm. is to throw you the mic, 
make you the podcast host to close us out. So you have any questions that you want to shoot my way before we go? Oh, totally. I have two. Well, actually I have okay. three. <laughs> First one, it. coffee or tea? Um, tea, but like the sugary <sighs> cold kind you get at like a convenience store. <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. I think we're done here. <laughs> I actually don't drink coffee. coffee. I actually don't <gasps> drink coffee. Oh my gosh. This is the most controversial part of this podcast. <laughs> Now we lo- know it's okay. Here's I the thing. Like you a Here's bit. the thing. I love the smell of coffee. Absolutely love the smell of coffee, but I don't like to drink it. And I don't like the taste. <gasps> now so we like know guys, there. everybody, guys and girls on the call, everybody on this podcast now knows it's okay. My, my all know what's wrong with me now. coffee. Well, no, I mean, it gives me more coffee. So thank you. Thank you, you know, for hey, that. There you, you go. We're very complimentary. It works out. <laughs> Uh, now more on a marketing note, you know, what is something you wish someone would ask about website, but never happens. I mean, I've gone through so many projects. I'm sure there's this, like, no one ever asked me this. Why not? It would make everything go so much better. Um, I think one of the things that we need to be asked more, and this is kind of our fault in positioning is why it is not the most ideal situation to have an agency do anything and everything for you. And what I mean by that is, oh, you know what? The branding agency, they also do websites. And we've actually had a a couple of close loss that this has come up and it's been too late in the conversation. They've already decided. It's like, okay, if we had brought this up earlier, then maybe they would, you know, no. So the first one is like the branding agency, they also do websites. We're just going to have them do it. Uh, The the messaging uh, agency that we have, they also do websites. We're just going to have it all in one place. And I think that B2B companies especially over glorify convenience for quality. So what I mean by that is you wouldn't necessarily catch a Ferrari owner going to a mechanic to get their car detailed and they're not going to go get their car detailed um, and have their engine work in the same place. Right. So a lot of times agencies that are specializing in one thing, so like branding, they'll outsource overseas the website build, and then it can take weeks to get things updated. Maybe it's not done right. Um, so something I'm passionate about, not many people ask is like, well, why should you go to a specialist? Because you're going to get better work when they're really good at one thing. Oh, that's a really good point. Uh, and on the CMO side, you know, I've, I've had really bad experiences personally having multiple agencies because it feels like the left hand doesn't talk to the right Mm -hmm. hand. It doesn't just feel like the left hand does not talk to the right hand. Um, and so I think that's an interesting problem in terms of, you know, it looks like you're going to have a single point of contact and you will have a frictionless approach, but reality is really different. And I've also experienced that, which is, mm-hmm. you know, when you overstretch, it could be that the non-specialist ends up taking longer, right? Or not delivering uh, what it is that you were hoping for. So it, it can be a trade-off of a single point of contact for like something that takes you know, three <laughs> months instead of one. Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting challenge of how will you work with other agencies to make it easier on your main point of contact mm-hmm. uh, and make sure that um, you get all the information and, and deliver what they need. So that's, that's a really interesting problem, actually. Maybe yeah, you know, it, it really is because I think a lot of agencies don't, or they feel, so for example, let's say a branding agency, mm-hmm. if they don't get the website deal and someone else does, maybe they're going to feel threatened mm-hmm. by the company that's now reaching out for the branding um materials and some of the messaging and stuff like that. So I can see where the communication definitely dies and become like a headache. And I understand the convenience side, but I just think it's like a little bit over glorified because yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I think like your most important marketing asset 
is like the website at the end of the day, you're going to put a hundred, $150,000 into it. Uh, you better make sure it's done right. So that issues aren't popping up in two weeks and then you can't get a hold of who needs to fix it. So yeah, that's, there's my soapbox for you. Oh, well, you know, and that jumps into my, my last question before we wrap up here, which is, you know, what's the most underutilized yet powerful type of content marketers should think about, you know, to your point, the website is probably the most prime real estate we usually have in terms of content. It's not the only one. It's not just mm-hmm. the front line, but it is a very central nervous system for the marketing collateral and messaging and branding. Um, it's, you know, your hub. Mm-hmm. And so what's the most underutilized piece of content that you've seen um, that should be in websites and is not usually considered? Or too um, How can you learn from a In a, in a website, thing? I would say certainly pricing. Uh, yeah, for one, yeah, we yeah. talked about it. I, I will still stand on that. Uh, pricing needs to be a, a major function or a major part of the website. And then two is clearly telling like what you do. I think that many SaaS companies, and I'm not a, a mess, we're not a messaging agency by any means. This is just something I have seen and I, you know, kind of have a passion for is not many companies clearly tell what they do in a few words. It's it's really difficult to do. Yes. It's it's really tough. It's really tough to do. And I think that I've seen some companies do it well. I don't have any off the top of my head. Um, And it's like, they, they're so close to the product that they never actually step back and think like, well, what actually do we do? And I think it goes back to what you were saying, where it comes uh, to speaking to customers, even to some of your prospects and figuring out like in their words, what do you do? And then putting that messaging on your website. Yeah, you know, actually that pivot has probably been the longest time coming for me that I should have, I wish I'd known earlier in my career and were more persistent in going after, which is, you know, like branding is is not what you say you are. It's what mm-hmm. people say you are when you leave the room. And yeah. so you can influence that, but you're not it. But what if you could understand how people after a while, right, say like, what do they say about you in the room? And is there a discrepancy between their belief and what you want them to do? Like the target belief system. Um, but yeah, like the discipline of talking to prospects and customers and getting it in their own words is so clarifying as an exercise mm-hmm. and then bringing that back into the website um, so that it's in their own words. Um, yeah, that's, that would be, that would, to go back to a previous question, that's something that I would want to do again. Well, I hope that answered some of your questions. Yes, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate you taking the mic and having some fun with it. This was good. Yes, this is awesome. (laughs) Carolyn, to wrap things up, uh, to close us out, where can we find out more about you on the internet? Well, so Aptology can be found on aptology.com. That's A-P-T-O-L-O-G-Y.com. And then we have a LinkedIn presence as well. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, Carolyn, thanks again for joining me. one of my favorite topics within marketing is uh, how to make it easier for people to buy. You think it would uh, not be rocket science, but here we are. <laughs> here we are though. Here we are. Here we are. Well, Carolyn, thanks so much. Have a good one. <laughs> thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam.